Chapter Three, Part One, Book One of Confession of a Child of the Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jesse. Confession of a Child of the Century by Alfred de Musset. Translated by Kendall Warren. Book One, Part One, Chapter Three. I must explain how I was first taken with the melody of the age. I attended a great supper after a masquerade. About me, my friends richly costumed. On all sides, young men and women, all sparkling with beauty and joy. On the right and on the left, exquisite dishes, flagons, splendor, flowers above my head a fine orchestra and before me my mistress a superb creature whom i idolized i was then nineteen i had experienced no great misfortune i had suffered from no disease my character was at once haughty and frank my heart full of the hopes of youth the fumes of wine fermented in my head it was one of those moments of intoxication when all that one sees and hears speaks to one of the adored all nature appeared then a beautiful stone with a thousand facets on which was engraven the mysterious name one would willingly embrace all who smile and one feels that he is brother of all who live my mistress had granted me a rendezvous for the night, and I was gently raising my glass to my lips while my eyes were fixed on her. As I turned to take a napkin, my fork fell. I stooped to pick it up, and, not finding it at first, I raised the tablecloth to see where it had rolled. I then saw under the table my mistress's foot. It rested on that of a young man seated beside her. From time to time they exchanged a gentle pressure. Perfectly calm, I asked for another fork and continued my supper. My mistress and her neighbor were also, on their side, very quiet, talking but little and never looking at each other. The young man had his elbows on the table and was chatting with another woman who was showing him her necklace and bracelets. My mistress sat motionless, her eyes fixed and filled with languor. I watched both of them during the entire supper, and I saw nothing either in their gestures or in their faces that could betray them. Finally, at dessert, I dropped my napkin, and, stooping down, saw that they were still in the same position. I had promised to take my mistress to her home that night. She was a widow and therefore quite at liberty, living alone with an old relative who served as chaperon. As I was crossing the hall, she called to me. "'Come, Octave,' she said here i am let us go i laughed and passed out without replying 
after walking a short distance i sat down on a stone projecting from a wall i do not know what my thoughts were i sat as though stupefied by the infidelity of that woman of whom i had never been jealous whom i had never had cause to suspect what i had seen left no room for doubt i was stunned as though by a blow from a club the only thing i remember doing as i sat there was looking mechanically up at the sky and seeing a star spin across the heavens i saluted that fugitive gleam in which poets see a blasted world and gravely took off my hat to it i returned to my home very quietly experiencing nothing as though deprived of sensation and reflection i undressed and retired hardly had my head touched the pillow when the spirit of vengeance seized me with such force that i suddenly sat bolt upright against the wall as though all my muscles were made of wood i jumped from my bed with a cry of pain i could walk only on my heels the nerves in my toes were so irritated i passed an hour in this way completely foolish and stiff as a skeleton it was the first burst of passion i had ever experienced the man i had surprised with my mistress was one of my most intimate friends i went to his house the next day in company with a young lawyer named dejeuner we took pistols another witness and repaired to the woods of vincennes on the way i avoided speaking to my adversary or even approaching him thus i resisted the temptation to insult or strike him a useless form of violence at a time when the law recognized the code but i could not remove my eyes from him he was the companion of my childhood and we had lived in the closest intimacy for many years he understood perfectly my love for my mistress and had several times intimated that bonds of this kind were sacred to a friend and that he would be incapable of an attempt to supplant me even if he loved the same woman in short i had perfect confidence in him and i had perhaps never pressed the hand of any human creature more cordially than his my glance was eager and curious as i scrutinized this man whom i had heard speak of love as an antique hero and whom i had caught caressing my mistress it was the first time in my life i had seen a monster i measured him with a haggard eye to see how he was made he whom i had known since he was ten years old with whom i had lived in the most perfect friendship it seems to me i had never seen him allow me a comparison there is a spanish play familiar to all the world in which a stone statue comes to sup with a debauchee sent thither by divine justice the debauchee puts a good face on the matter and forces himself to affect indifference 
but the statue asks for his hand and when he has extended it he feels himself seized by a mortal chill and falls in convulsions whenever i have loved and confided in any one either friend or mistress and suddenly discover that i have been deceived i can only describe the effect produced on me by comparing it to the clasp of that marble hand it is the actual impression of marble it is as though a man of stone had kissed me alas this horrible apparition has knocked more than once at my door more than once we have supped together when the arrangements were all made we placed ourselves in line facing each other and slowly advancing my adversary fired the first shot wounding me in the right arm i immediately seized my pistol in the other hand but my strength failed i could not raise it i fell on one knee then i saw my enemy running up to me with an expression of great anxiety on his face and very pale my seconds hastened to my side seeing that i was wounded but he pushed them aside and seized my wounded arm his teeth were set and i could see that he was suffering intense anguish his agony was the most frightful that man can experience go he cried go dress your wound at the house of he choked and so did i i was placed in a cab where i found a physician my wound was not dangerous the bone being untouched but i was in such a state of excitation that it was impossible to properly dress my wound as they were about to drive from the field i saw a trembling hand at the door of my cab it was my adversary i shook my head in reply i was in such a rage that i could not pardon him although i felt that his repentance was sincere by the time i reached home i had lost much blood and felt relieved for feebleness saved me from the force of anger which was doing me more harm than my wound i willingly retired to my bed and called for a glass of water which i quickly swallowed with relish but i was soon attacked by fever it was then i began to shed tears i could understand that my mistress had ceased to love me but not that she could deceive me i could not comprehend why a woman who was forced to it by neither duty nor interest could lie to one man when she loved another twenty times a day i asked my friend dejeuner how that could be possible if i were her husband i said or if i supported her i could easily understand how she might be tempted to deceive me but if she no longer loves me why deceive me i did not understand how any one could lie for love i was but a child then but i confess that i do not understand it yet 
every time i have loved a woman i have told her of it and when i ceased to love her i confessed it to her with the same sincerity having always thought that in matters of this kind the will was not concerned and that there was no crime but falsehood to all this dejeuner replied she is unworthy promise me that you will never see her again i solemnly promised he advised me moreover not to write to her not even to reproach her and if she wrote to me not to reply i promised all that with some surprise that he should consider it necessary to exact such a promise nevertheless the first thing i did when i was able to leave my room was to visit my mistress i found her alone seated in the corner of the room with an expression of sorrow on her face and an appearance of general disorder in her surroundings i overwhelmed her with violent reproaches i was intoxicated with despair in a paroxysm of grief i fell on the bed and gave free course to my tears ah faithless one wretch i cried between my sobs you knew that it would kill me did the prospect please you what have i done to you she threw her arms around my neck saying that she had been seduced that my rival had intoxicated her at that fatal supper but that she had never been his that she had abandoned herself in a moment of forgetfulness that she had committed a fault but not a crime but that if i would not pardon her she too would die all that sincere repentance has of tears all that sorrow has of eloquence she exhausted to console me pale and distressed her dress deranged and her hair falling over her shoulders she kneeled in the middle of her chamber never have i seen anything so beautiful and i shuddered with horror as my senses revolted at the sight i went away crushed scarcely able to direct my tottering steps i wished never to see her again but in a quarter of an hour i returned i do not know what desperate resolve i had formed i experienced a dull desire to possess her once more to drain the cup of tears and bitterness to the dregs and then to die with her in short i abhorred her and i idolized her i felt that her love was my ruin but that to live without her was impossible i mounted the stairs like a flash i spoke to none of the servants but familiar with the house opened the door of her chamber i found her seated calmly before her toilet table covered with jewels she held in her hand a piece of crape which she passed gently over her cheeks i thought i was dreaming it did not seem possible that this was the woman i had left just fifteen minutes before 
overwhelmed with grief, abased to the floor. I was as motionless as a statue. She, hearing the door open, turned her head and smiled. Is it you? she said. She was going to the ball and was expecting my rival. As she recognized me, she compressed her lips and frowned. I started to leave the room. I looked at her bare neck, lithe and perfumed, on which rested her knotted hair, confined by a jeweled comb. That neck, the seat of vital force, was blacker than Hades. Two shining tresses had fallen there, and some light silvern hairs balanced above it. Her shoulders and neck, whiter than milk, displayed a heavy growth of down. There was in that knotted head of hair something indescribably immodest, which seemed to mock me when I thought of the disorder in which I had seen her a moment before. I suddenly stepped up to her and struck that neck with the back of my hand. My mistress gave vent to a cry of terror and fell on her hands while I hastened from the room. When I reached my room, I was again attacked by fever and was obliged to take to my bed. My wound had reopened and I suffered great pain. Dejeuner came to see me and I told him what had happened. He listened in silence, then paced up and down the room as though undecided as to his course. Finally he stopped before my bed and burst out laughing. Is she your first mistress? he asked. No, I replied. She is my last. Toward midnight, while sleeping restlessly, I seemed to hear in my dreams a profound sigh. I opened my eyes and saw my mistress standing near my bed with arms crossed, looking like a spectre. I could not restrain a cry of fright believing it to be an apparition conjured up by my diseased brain. I leaped from my bed and fled to the farther end of the room, but she followed me. It is I, said she. Putting her arms around me, she drew me to her. What do you want of me? I cried. Leave me. I fear I shall kill you. Very well. Kill me, she said. I have deceived you. I have lied to you. I'm an infamous wretch, and I am miserable. But I love you, and I cannot live without you. I looked at her. How beautiful she was. Her body was quivering. Her eyes languid with love and moist with voluptuousness. Her bosom was bare, her lips burning. I raised her in my arms. Very well, I said, but before God who sees us, by the soul of my father, I swear that I will kill you and that I will die with you. I took a knife from the table and placed it under the pillow. Come, Octave, she said, 
smiling and kissing me. Do not be foolish. Come, my dear, all these horrors have unsettled your mind. You are feverish. Give me that knife. I saw that she wished to take it. Listen to me, I then said. I do not know what comedy you are playing, but as for me, I am in earnest. I have loved you as only a man can love, and to my sorrow, I love you still. You have just told me that you love me, and I hope it is true. But, by all that is sacred, if I am your lover tonight, no one shall take my place tomorrow. Before God, before God, I repeated, I would not take you back as my mistress, for I hate you as much as I love you. Before God, if you consent to stay here tonight, I will kill you in the morning. When I had spoken these words, I fell into a delirium. She threw her cloak over her shoulders and fled from the room. When I told Dejeuner about it, he said, Why did you do that? You must be very much disgusted, for she is a beautiful woman. Are you choking? I asked. Do you think such a woman could be my mistress? Do you think I would ever consent to share her with another? Do you know that she confesses that another possesses her, and do you expect me, loving her as I do, to share my love? If that is the way you love, I pity you. Dejeuner replied that he was not so particular. My dear Octave, he added, you are very young. You want many things, beautiful things, which do not exist. You believe in a singular sort of love. Perhaps you are capable of it. I believe you are, but I do not envy you. You will have other mistresses, my friend, and you will live to regret what happened last night. If that woman came to you, it is certain that she loved you. Perhaps she does not love you at this moment. Indeed, she may be in the arms of another. But she loved you last night in that room. And what should you care for the rest? You will regret it, believe me, for she will not come again. A woman pardons everything except such a slight. Her love for you must have been something terrible when she came to you knowing and confessing herself guilty, risking rebuff and contempt at your hands. Believe me, you will regret it, for I am satisfied that you will soon be cured. There was such an air of simple conviction about my friend's words, such a despairing certainty based on experience, that I shuddered as I listened. While he was speaking, I felt a strong desire to go to my mistress, or to write to her to come to me. I was so weak that I could not leave my bed, and that saved me from the shame of finding her waiting for my rival or perhaps in his company. But I could write to her. 
in spite of myself i doubted whether she would come if i should write when Dejeuner left me i became so desperate that i resolved to put an end to my trouble after a terrible struggle horror got the better of love i wrote my mistress that i would never see her again and begged her not to try to see me unless she wished to be exposed to the shame of being refused admittance i called a servant and ordered him to deliver the letter at once he had hardly closed the door when i called him back he did not hear me i did not dare call again covering my face with my hands i yielded to an overwhelming sense of despair end of chapter three part one book one